I do want to mention before we begin our Founders series, um, I am with great expectation looking forward to um, leading our racial reconciliation group. Uh, if you haven't heard me talk about it over the past few semesters or years, um, this is something new that we're doing. We feel like um, as a staff team and as a community that this is an area where um, the church, our believers, followers of Jesus should lead the way in, particularly because 2 Corinthians 5 says that as recipients of the ministry of reconciliation, we are to be ministers of reconciliation, that we're to be reenactors of the reconciliation that we receive from Christ across cultural lines, um, across racial divides, um, and because as kingdom people, we're to usher in part of heaven on earth now. And so I don't show up at this group an expert. I don't show up as perfect in the area of what it's like to love and learn and live with people that look differently than me. But I do show up humbly and ready to be a part uh, in a small, tiny way of taking action where it's so easy to have inaction, especially if you look like me. And so I did want to make note of that in case you haven't heard the passion and vision behind that. Um, so the preview night is next week after service, and then we'll meet uh, for about seven weeks on Sunday nights on campus. And so I want to extend an invitation to you and just kind of let you know why we're doing that. And you're probably like, why, why is Blaine leading that? Um, it, uh, that's a great question. I asked the Lord the same thing. Um, and I, I do feel that it's an area for me where I would rather take a swing and a miss than not swing at all, if that makes sense. So you guys don't know about baseball, so that's okay. Um, great. I do want to say another prayer. We like praying in Chi Alpha, and then we will begin uh, week one of our series, our teaching series called Founders. Dear Jesus, thanks for this time. All of us that are here, here for a reason. Thank you for bringing us here. I pray that each of us would be open to hearing from you, knowing that you're Bible, your word is good. It reveals your character and your instructions. It's good for teaching and correction. We're grateful that we have the privilege of it and we get to experience it in community. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen. So you might be wondering why we're doing this Founders series or what the goal of it is. And there's several, but the main goal of our Founders series is to look at people who have gone before us in living out the will of God and then asking ourselves the question, what can we learn from these role models of faith that we can apply to our own lives? We're introduced to this idea or this practice of remembering or looking back in the book of Hebrews, primarily in chapter 11, right? You probably know it as like the chapter of the hall of faith or the greats who have come before Hebrews 12 and 13. Let us know that there's this great crowd of people who have walked the race before us. And in some ways, whether it's literal or metaphorical, the message is the same, that they are cheering you and I on as we walk, as we look to see what God might have of his people, of us as followers of Jesus. And it's encouraging to see people that have walked the road before us because the road is narrow. Sometimes it seems lonely, but there are people who have walked the path before us. It's not a path that's new for people to try and stumble and follow. So that's the theological reason why we're doing this. I think the experiential reason for me is very personal. I, I just finished reading this book called The Roots of Endurance, and it studies 18th and 19th century missionaries, pastors, and martyrs. And I love reading not about their successes, but about their suffering. Uh, not because I'm completely sick and twisted, although I am fallen, um, but primarily because suffering is a unique teacher 
and it's helpful to know how other people suffered well for Jesus or even because of Jesus so that I can submit when needed to the process of suffering so that character would be built, so that perseverance would be built, and more importantly, so that God would receive glory and attention and worth for whatever he's doing, whether it's blessing in my life or difficulty. You might also be excited that we're talking about the Old Testament. Um, I was talking to some alum the other day, and they, they were like, I can't believe we're talking about the Old Testament. I just graduated. Why didn't we do this before? And the honest answer, um, and, and I'll be a little candid, is I sometimes am not completely comfortable teaching from the Old Testament. It's not a, a passion of mine, not a skill of mine. Uh, but I realize this can't be an excuse because there's this really great part of the story that we can miss out on. And so sometimes people are like, Blaine, why don't you teach out of it? This is your fault. And I'm like, yeah, this time it is. Yeah, I'll take the blame on that. So uh, I'm excited to be teaching, not from a, a large file of messages I've taught before in the Old Testament, but weekly trying to hear from the Lord for our community, studying Scripture. Um, and as Mike Godso, the former director of Chi Alpha AU said, um, sometimes when we study Scripture, um, it provides some self-discipleship from God. And so I'm excited to pass along some things I feel like God's teaching me that I'm learning um, in areas of the Bible where I may not often frequent, and maybe you too don't frequent, but I'm glad we get to do it as a community together. Great. So tonight, our focus is the person of Deborah. Um, we're going to primarily be looking at her story, Judges 4 and Judges 5 tells the story of Deborah. You may read it and find that it's a little bit repetitive, and that's because it is. Judges 4 tells us the account of what happened in some important moments in the life of Deborah. Judges 5 tells us from Deborah's perspective with Barak, who she's kind of like partners in kingdom business with, which we'll get to in a moment, is a song that they sing about the glories of God and what he's done. And so if you're reading this and you're like, 4 and 5 seem repetitive, what's going on? It's because 4 is an account, more of a narrative of what's happened. 5 is a song in the, in the tradition of oral storytelling and oral history being passed. It's a song of praise to God about what has happened. And so that explains why those accounts may have different emphases or why they may sound different is because one is a written account and one is a song. But we'll primarily be in Judges 4 and 5. Speaking of Hebrews 11, though, I want to point us uh, to, to verse 32. The writer of Hebrews says this, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the other prophets. And so I love that there are so many people that have gotten before us that the writer's like, I just don't have time to tell you about all the good stuff that these people trusted God to do. And so Deborah would be included in this idea of prophets. She is both a prophet and a judge. So if you're taking notes, that's important to note. That's only, that distinction is only given to one other person in Scripture, and it is, um, it's Samuel who I get to talk about later in the series, spoiler alert, but she's a prophet, she's a judge, she's included in that sentence, and the prophets, but I think even more importantly, Barak is included because of the obedience and leadership of Deborah that we'll read about in Judges 4 and 5, which gives us a great kingdom principle off the bat, that great godly leaders leave a mark on other people, and other people are exalted or lifted up because of their leadership. It's like a testament to God's graciousness and to Deborah's wisdom and boldness as a leader that she doesn't even need her name mentioned in Hebrews 11 because her leadership leads to somebody else's name being mentioned. That, for me, is the difference between the type of leadership we might see in culture and the type of leadership we see in the kingdom. One is about, at times, making a point, but in the kingdom, it's about making a difference. 
It's not about just sharing an idea. It's about raising up others who would be leaders. Judges 4.4 gives us a snapshot into the life of Deborah. It says, now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. If you have an older translation, it might say she was judging Israel at the time. I love that newer translations recognize that she was actually leading God's people, the Israelites, because judges, when we read that, we might think about roses, I don't know, robes. Thank you, Natalie. Not roses. That was weird. Um, She actually didn't help me. I just did that to embarrass her. Anyways, um, robes or judicial matters or courtrooms, that's not at all what judges look like in the government of God in the Old Testament. Instead, they were, as um, Jewish scholars tell us, they were charismatic leaders. They were intermediaries between God and his people. And so that's actually more correct rendering when those newer translations uh, say that she was leading Israel at the time. So here's some context to know why this is important. And before we get to how she led and how she was an amazing leader, a strong and bold discerning leader, here's some understanding of what's going on before. In the period uh, that Judges is accounting for, the people of God, the Israelites, have this terrible habit of leaning or flirting with rebellion towards God. I love reading in the Old Testament about the people of God because it so often mirrors my own life. It's so easy to rebel from the ways of God. Uh, In the original language, sin, just hamarsha, it means missing God's mark. And isn't it obvious that most of us miss God's mark often? So when I read about Israel, I don't just read about God's promises to Israel. I read about how inconsistent they are and how often that mirrors my experience. And so in Judges, what's happening is that there are uh, people being raised up, these judges. Uh, Deborah is one of them. Deborah is the only judge that's a woman that's recorded in the Old Testament. Uh, But there's these judges, and every time they live, uh, they're acting as intermediaries between God and his people. When they die, there's a few years that are a gap between leadership, and that's when rebellion takes place in the lives of the people that are in Israel, the Israelites. So Judges 4.1 opens with the death of the previous judge and lets us know that, again, the Israelites have rebelled against God. So there's a cycle that's taking place of faithfulness and sin, of following and of uh, disengaging. And this cycle continues to take place, so God continues out of his love to do something interesting. At the beginning of almost every chapter in Judges 1 through 5, we find out that when a judge has died, that God will often give people over to their choices and their desires, their disobedience, and then he'll give favor or allowance to their enemies so that God's people would reap the not rewards, but reap the result of their disobedience. So Judges 4 takes us into a place where the Canaanites, the enemies of God in history, particularly in the time that Judges was written and accounting for, that he hands them over because of their rebellion to their enemies. God allows this because in history we see that as people make choices, God respects those choices, but he's willing to use the results of the choices to redeem or draw them back. Every single time in Judges 1 through 3, when he allows their enemies to oppress them for a set of time, a decade, two decades, three decades, what's interesting is that in their brokenness, when their pride is broken, they discover their true identity. 
That's a whole sermon in itself, right? Like when you and I have our pride broken, we can discover our true identity. Sometimes we don't have the maturity to learn in a season of harvest, so the Lord graciously allows a season of famine to come into our lives. Not because he doesn't love us, but because he loves our future more than he loves our feelings at a particular time. So Judges 4 gives us this idea, gives us this reality that the judge that has come before is dead, that the people are rebelling against um, God, and that he has allowed for decades the Canaanites under Jabin the king with an infamous commander, Sisera, to completely oppress the people of God because of their disobedient heart and their rebellious spirit. That's where we get introduced to, to Deborah in Judges 4. Four. And what takes place over Judges 4 and is repeated in song form in Judges 5 is this amazing story of Deborah's leadership as both a judge and a prophet. It's important to know that when we read about prophets or prophecy in the Old and the New Testament, um, that we realize that prophecy is truth-telling before it's future-telling. That prophecy can sometimes be uh, manifest itself as a future telling, but it's really truth telling. And that it can sometimes even be truth telling without future telling. So she is being a prophetic voice as a judge. And unlike any other judge in the entire book of Judges, people are coming to her for advice. Unlike the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah who have to go out and speak over, people are coming to her because of her wisdom. It said she is under a palm tree that's given a, a nickname. It's called Deborah's Palm Tree. It's a famous landmark in this culture and time. And she's under there in the daytime. And people are coming to her for advice, coming to her for instruction about the ways of God. And she is dispensing it as judge with authority, but as prophet with insight into the heart and mind of God. Deborah's a pretty amazing person in the story of Scripture. And she's connected, or we're connected to her faithfulness. And that's why. She is a founder. So we find out later on, just to summarize a few things and to paraphrase what's going to happen in Judges 4. In Judges 4, she's going to do what all God-centered, kingdom-minded prophets will do. She is going to call out the characteristics of God in somebody before they even see it. So th the myth is that prophecy is just like you getting called out on your secret sins. Like, you hear the word prophecy, you're like, I'm not going in that prayer room. That pastor's going to tell me what I've been looking at on my computer. No way! I'm not going. I'm not going to the prayer room. Prophecy happens in there. I do not want people knowing my secret business. Instead, the truth about prophecy is that sometimes it does include calling us uh, out on our sin, but it involves calling us to something else. To something that John 10 says is an abundant life in Christ. And in this context, she's calling out this military commander, Barak, into the will of God, which is victory over the Canaanites and freedom for the people of God. What I love about um, this passage, and I think it's important to note, although it's not the primary purpose of this passage, is that Barak, the military commander who's going to have, um, who's going to be called into God's will by the leadership of Deborah, or even Deborah's wife, Lapidoth, neither of these men, even in the sexist culture that they're living in, have an issue with Deborah being chosen by God to lead. To which I would have to ask, if they didn't have an issue with it then, why do we sometimes have an issue with it today? Whole nother sermon, whole nother time, but you get where I'm going. 
Some scholars actually tell us because she was in the daytime giving wisdom as prophet and judge under the palm tree that her family rearranged the household duties that culture would ascribe to her in order that she would be freed up by her gifts and by her anointing to lead the way God called her to lead. So she is not concerned with what culture has asked her to do. She does not fit into the stereotype that we sometimes see falsely used and called out of Proverbs 31. Instead, her entire family has rearranged their expectations of her that come from culture to make way for God's anointing for her life. I am convinced that if the church today would have a better understanding of what that meant for women in leadership, we'd be in a far better place. Another sermon, another day. Sorry, I got, I got excited. I got excited. Some of you guys are like, what are we supposed to do in that moment? You're supposed to get excited too. But anyways, the Lord will work on your heart. That's okay. Barack is a military commander. He is not a judge. The fact that Deborah can summon him shows us that he is under her leadership. And she tells Barack that God has told her some unique things about what he is to do. That he is to gather men, he's to gather soldiers, and he is to fight the Canaanites, to fight the, the rule of Jabin, the commander Sisera. He is to fight them and that God will deliver victory into his hands. I love Barak's response in Judges 4.8. She just told him this. She summoned him. She said, you're to go. You're to do this. She's given him the directive from God as a prophet, as a judge. And he says, if you go with me, I'm down. Okay, that was my translation. If you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. I grew up in church hearing that, right? And that, I always thought it was like a prophet to God or like some random Old Testament character to God, like, I won't go without you, which is a good principle, but in actuality, that originates with Barak telling Deborah, I will not go into this. I will not follow God. I will not live out the will of God unless you go with me. This is where it gets pretty cool. She becomes the triple threat. She now transitions from being judge and prophet to also being a warrior. Later in Judges, it says that she goes into battle with him, which tells us that great godly leaders are willing to risk their reputation and their own safety. She has never been in battle before. It is not normal for a judge or a prophet to go in battle. Never in Scripture do we see this happening again in the roller office of judge and prophet. But Deborah is willing to get it done. Why? Because she hears the voice of God, and she's calling out in others God's best for them. And because she wants Barak to see victory and her people to experience victory, she's willing to do whatever it takes. So now she becomes a warrior. She goes into battle. She says this in Judges 4.9. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you're taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera, that's the evil commander, into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. So when you read that, if you're like me, and, and I hadn't studied Deborah as much as I should have, and, I, and now I'm like, I'm like super team Deborah right now, what's great about this is that you might read that and assume that she's saying that she's going to get the credit. But you've read kind of further into the story, Hebrews 11, she doesn't get the credit. What's interesting about this story is that Barak does what she says, she's with him in the battle, and they win. Uh, they win the battle like hands down. Judges 4, 10, and 11 say that every single person in the army of Jabin, led under Sisera, is killed. 
all of them, that Sisera flees uh, to a third-party ally, and he goes into the tent, and Jael, a woman, is there in the tent, and she's like, come on in. Later in Judges, it's great because it says that she, he, he asks for water. She serves him, what scholars tell us, like a cup of nobility with milk. So she's like going above and beyond. He falls asleep, exhausted. And then J.L., this woman who he thought he had an alliance with, she picks up a hammer. This is so cool, right? She picks up a hammer. You know where I'm going. Maybe you don't. Get ready. This is, this is PG-13. I'm glad my son's not here. She picks up a hammer. The guy's asleep. And she picks up a peg from a tent, and she nails it through the temple of his skull and kills him. Deborah's prophecy is fulfilled in somebody else, in JL. Why? Because great leaders don't need to be at the center of attention. What's amazing is that Deborah shows up with Barak. They're chasing Sisera. They're like, we think he went in this tent. They go in, and JL's just sitting there with his joker bleeding out on the ground. And I'm sure Deborah's like, I told you so, Barak. You're not getting the honor for this. Initially, God had promised Barak that he would be a part, a center part in the story, but because he didn't fully trust in God, in my opinion, he was still allowed by God's grace to see this happen, but he had to share or give up the glory. So JL becomes a person who, at the end of the story, she's like the champion, the warrior, unexpected. What I love about this story is that it tells us that when culture doesn't expect you to live for God, when culture says you can't do this or you can't do that, God with a resounding yes says you can. The entire narrative of Scripture is filled with people that culture would not expect to be valued, that culture would not expect to be used by God, and God says, I will use you, and I will use you mightily. Deborah is a countercultural example in an atmosphere that had low expectations for her, what it meant when she walked in the anointing, walked in the purposes that God had for her. I love what we find out in the middle of the story, and I kind of skipped over it, but we find out in verse 14 that right before they go to battle, before that like R-rated, like head broken, bleeding out scene that you guys just loved that I shared, before that, she gives another piece of leadership, of empowerment to Barak, and she says, this is the time to go. And don't you know that the Lord has gone before you? If you and I will hear the will of God and attempt to live it out, God will always go before you. That where God guides you, he has already gone ahead of you. Scripture tells us that if we believe in Jesus, we're to know that he is at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. Now, your, your circumstances may not always feel or look victorious. So don't, like, lift this out of context and be like, the Lord led me to get an A in this class, Blaine. I didn't study. I didn't get an A. Your God doesn't work. No, you're just not reading this right. You just made a dumb mistake. I'm sorry. This is telling us that when you know the will of God and can stand firm on it, that he will always go before us, and that even when our circumstances fail us, we have true victory because we have witness or relationship with God. The greatest temptations that prophets or prophetic voices face are the following, in my opinion, is that they know the truth and they tell it, but they tell it to others about somebody instead of telling the person directly. She goes directly to Barak twice and encourages him, fuels him, leads him through her discerning empowerment to go 
to attack. She's not caught up in complaining or in telling the truth to somebody who can't make a difference. She summons Barak, the highest military commander at the time. The other temptation of being a prophetic voice is to tell truth in a way that expands your own reputation or your own kingdom. It's the difference, like I said earlier, between making a point and making a difference. In the kingdom of God, it's our motives that also matter. So you can have the right answer, but if you go about it in the wrong way, you have given up your prophetic privilege as a child of God. Deborah is the prime example and a foreshadowing of Jesus himself, of a selfless leader who is willing to speak boldly into the lives of people so that God would raise them up, so that even beyond their own expectations, they would live for him and that his will would come through. Now, I don't know where you come from theologically, and you might not like the word prophecy, and that might bug you a little bit. That's okay. You can get over it. That's cool. Because let me tell you, God is looking for a generation that would be a prophetic voice in our culture, in the church, on our campus, and in this community. Every single one of you is here because you had a Deborah in your life. Every single one of you is here because somebody spoke truth to you and invited you here. It was as simple as someone saying, hey, I think you'd enjoy this service. I think God would bless you. That is prophecy. You are here because a parent prayed over you and taught you about who Jesus is. They spoke the truth into your life so that you'd recognize that not only are you made in the image of God, but also through belief, you are now a child of God. The question, though, that I think is at the forefront of my mind for our community in this time and this season is will you be a Deborah in somebody else's life? Because without Deborah, there's no mention of Barak. There's no killing a Sisera. There's no jail. There's no peace. Judges 4.31 says that this actions, the obedience of Deborah, led to 40 years of peace for the people of God. That the rebellion of God's people stopped. So the prerequisite for peace, the prerequisite for heart change is a Deborah. The prerequisite for the change that you want to see in your family, in your friends, in your classes, is for somebody, it's for a group of people to rise up with the spirit of Deborah speaking truth boldly, standing on the foundation of what they've heard from God. I realized this a few years ago. There's this great temptation when I come up here on Thursdays. I, I, I battle at times, some more than others. I want to be liked. I want to please everybody. I want to be like your favorite spiritual uncle. I want to be cool and trendy and wear red socks so that you can talk about my sock game. I don't know what that means. But here's what I know. Is that as much as you think you might want that, that's not what you need. You need somebody. You need a staff team. You need people in your life who have been with God. And that they would then, because of the result of that, impact your life. And let me tell you what your friends need, what your family members need who don't know Jesus. They do not need a watered-down Christianity. They do not need for you to make the kingdom of God's entrance bigger. Matt Chandler says that you'll never make Jesus cool enough for everybody to like him. What they need is someone who has been with God, so much so that Moses, after he was with God, they built a place for him to stay because people could tell that he was with God. So instead of better communication about the gospel, what your friends need, what a lying and dying, a lying, a deaf and lost world, what they need, what I need in my life for my family and my friends that don't yet know Jesus is to be with God and for me to have been with him so long and so deep that it rubs off, that they can see it, that they can sense it, that his psalm says that they can taste it and experience it. It is good. 
So the question moves from have you noticed a Deborah in your life to do you want to be a Deborah for somebody else? But then it shifts in the conversation for me is are you living in rebellion? The people of God have a track record of living in rebellion. This passage reminds us that if we're living in rebellion, we are not living God's best for our lives, that we are trusting ourselves instead of God, and that we are not living life to its fullest, that we have been deceived, that what we are experiencing is joy. It is not. It is passing. It is fleeting. But what this also asks us, too, is do we long for those who are rebellious to return? My prayer this semester is that if you treat Thursday night worship or small group or, or, or any part of our community, if, if you treat it as a place of refuge from the world out there, that you'd stop doing that or stop coming. God has not called us to be religious refugees. God has not called us to be people who enjoy righteous living and who are looking to get away from the very thing that breaks his heart. God is calling us, empowering us to be ambassadors of him, to represent his office and his views and his love with boldness to the world out there. Bill Hybel says it best, commenting on William Temple, says that the reason that the church exists is for its non-members or those that are not here yet. So if this is a place where you can comfortably kind of come and hide away, I hope and pray that God interrupts you that God changes that about you or changes that about us. Because a temptation in a community like this, it either goes one of two ways, and I've been there and I'm sure you have too. You either forget that we're fighting for people out there and we just start fighting in here about things that don't really matter. Or you enjoy it so much in here and you think it's perfect and somehow we haven't disillusioned you or disappointed you, which I don't know how that's possible, but you're somehow there and it's so good you keep it for yourself. Can I tell you biblically, your story is no longer your own if you are God's. Scripture says that we are no longer slaves um, to sin, but it does say after that this uncomfortable truth that we are slaves to righteousness. Biblically speaking, if you are a closeted Christian, you are not being Christ-like. That God wants more for you, but he also wants more for those who are not here yet. He's looking and saying in Hebrews 1, in Psalm 2, we find out that the inheritance of Jesus for his work on earth is the nations, and that our job is to gather his beloved inheritance. He's saying don't run away from the world, but instead run into it. He's saying don't come and hide away in community or in church, but instead stir up good deeds of love and be an example, be a light, be a city on a hill for the sake of somebody else. It's a difficult challenge. It's not a challenge that I just give to you. It's a challenge that I feel like God is giving to me this very week. As I was praying over what this service would be like tonight and how we'd set the tone for the semester, I really did feel like, through the Holy Spirit and the reading of this text, that God would be telling me something and maybe he'd be telling it to you too. And it's the following. Don't tell me that you believe in transformed lives. Don't tell me that you believe in the message of Jesus. Don't tell me that you believe in healing or miracles. Don't tell me what you believe in anymore, but show me by your actions, by loving those who are not here yet. The world is tired of people telling them things. I am tired of people telling me things. 
what the world needs, what our friends need, what my family members need that do not know Jesus is an opportunity to experience, to see, and so they need somebody to show them. The most difficult and saddening part of this message is there are people on our campus who do not have a Deborah fighting for them because we have not stood up to the challenge. That they do not have somebody speaking truth. They do not have somebody speaking life. They do not have someone that sees beyond their mistakes, beyond their perceived identity, and saying, God has something greater for you than you can even imagine. So as we think through our response tonight, and as the worship band comes up, and we, we, we kind of prayerfully consider what this might mean individually for us, but also as a community, I've got to tell you that we need to be with God and we need to do so for the sake of those around us. Deborah yielded a power and strength from God that through Jesus and the Holy Spirit that you and I have access to. Deborah spoke with a boldness because it wasn't her preferences or agenda on the line, but instead it was God's will for somebody else. Deborah risked reputation and safety when she became whatever she needed to become to see God's will played out in the lives of her family and her people. Deborah led by example, saying, I will go with you. I will speak truth, and then I will live truth. And then Deborah was a discerning leader. Why? Because she's given the title of prophet, because even though she's in the office of judge and can, through her own strength, give out wisdom and instruction, she chooses not to, and instead hears the Holy Spirit, hears the Spirit of God every single time so that she made sure she was only repeating something and never creating something. God desires for our campus and for your life for you to pick up the mantle, to pick up the opportunity, to lean into the privilege of being part of a prophetic movement, a truth-telling movement, a movement that cares more for somebody's future than their feelings at the moment, a movement that cares more for what God says about that person than what that person might think about me, a movement that says that everybody, to move along their story and to see God come, heaven invading earth, that we need to see a generation of people in the Deborah spirit who are leaders, who are emboldened, who will not relent, who will not give up, who are dissatisfied with the rebellion that they see. What's great about this story is that Deborah, she was doing okay before all this happened. She was prophet, she was judge, she was basically already written to the canon of scripture. But she allowed herself to be uncomfortable with other people's realities, other people's shortcomings. She took on more not out of her own self-identity or not out of her own self-improvement, but solely so that somebody else might hear and see and know and taste and experience freedom. The question is, is there people that you and I are fighting for that aren't here yet? May we become dissatisfied with 100 students at TNW. May we become dissatisfied with one mission trip. May we become dissatisfied with nine small groups. May we become dissatisfied with three baptisms each semester. May we become dissatisfied with what we're experiencing. Why? May we be greedy in the kingdom so that people would know God. If that does not become a heartbeat of our lives and of our ministry, we have missed the mark and biblically speaking, we have sinned. You are not here because you don't have anything else to do. At some point, you believe this stuff. Or you want to believe these things. But the goodness of God is that it requires our involvement. 
may we not be satisfied with a taste of grace for ourselves, leaving others so in need of grace hungry. As we begin to pray our response, I'd love for us to stand together before we sing. An attitude of listening to God and, and wanting to respond. When we gather and we speak or teach or preach, we don't do so for applause, but for action in each other's lives. I don't even think we have to close our eyes right now to be in a prayerful spirit or moment. But I do want to ask some questions as we think through how we respond to this. Are you living in rebellion towards God? Maybe you call yourself a Christian, maybe you don't, but are you living in a way that is missing the mark or even antithetical to the kingdom principles of God? If so, the good news is, is that you can become a person influenced by Jesus, making him the Lord and Savior of your life, making a decision that you'll walk out for a lifetime that will be difficult and filled with suffering, but will always have meaning and purpose and will lead to eternity with him. If that's you, I would just love for you to raise your hand. We want to pray with you. We want to begin walking with you in that journey. If you're like, hey, that's me. This is weird. I'm standing up. I'm praying, but my eyes are open. This guy's really strange up there talking about this Old Testament story. But if that's you, I want to give a moment. You raise your hand. If there's somebody around you that has their hand up, can you put your hand on their shoulder and pray for them? I see some folks here. Can you put your hand on it? That's just a sign that we say, hey, we're praying with you. We're believing for you. If you see somebody with your hand up, you can just put your hand on their shoulder. I see some folks now. It's okay. Don't wait for me. You guys can pray too. Thank you, Jesus. I want to pray for us, and I want you to pray for your friends. Here's the thing. This might be uncomfortable for you, but growth always comes from discomfort. That's why I avoid the gym, okay? So if you come here expecting to be comfortable, it's not going to happen. Let's pray. Why don't you pray individually for your friends, and I'll pray as well. We pray at once. God can hear multiple people talking at once. He's cool like that. God, I pray for our friends right now who are saying that, man, they want to live under your authority, no longer in rebellion, but coming to you, no longer satisfied with missing the mark, living in sin, but instead letting you be both Savior and Lord of their life. God, we lift them up. We pray that you would call them unto you. God, Ephesians says that you seal us with the Holy Spirit in order that we may preserve as your people for all eternity. God, I pray this week when they're tempted, when they're challenged, when they're tested, God, they'd remember that you've given us authority through Jesus, empowerment through the Spirit. God, that Deborah is isn't just a story that we hear, but it's a life that you want us to live, hearing from you and living out the good news of the kingdom, heaven coming to earth, restoration taking place in all areas of our life, however slowly. God, we pray these things over our friends. We believe these things, but God, we also believe that it doesn't just stop here, that this is the beginning of a lifelong journey. This is the beginning of conversations between friends and one-on-ones and small groups and coming back. That it isn't just a check the box, say a prayer moment, but that you call us to exchange our entire lives so that we might taste and experience your goodness. And as our friends do that, may we rejoice, may we support them, and may we encourage them. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
I read about my friends at Virginia Tech Chi Alpha. They also do this with their eyes open, so they inspired me. But after they pray that prayer, they usually have people get kind of excited for their friends that like just made that commitment. So I think we should do that. Yeah, now's when you would do that. Let me tell you, if that was you and you raise your hand, we want to be here for you, but we also want you to let us know how we can serve you. Here's the next question. You can keep your eyes open. We've already gotten past the awkward part. Maybe you sense that God is calling you or you are desiring to live in that Deborah spirit, being a prophetic voice to your friends truth-telling, bold, standing on the foundation of God. Maybe you've been that before and you've given in a temptation. You've made it about yourself. You've made it about telling truth to the wrong people, which has led to gossip or complaining or division. But you're saying, you know what? God has called me to this. I'm tired of playing games. I'm tired of this being just for me. This should be the direction of my life, proclaiming the goodness of God for the sake of others and because God's worth it. If that's you, we want to open up these altars. We want you to come and kneel and to seek God and to respond saying, that is me. Deborah isn't just a story we read about. She's an example as to how you and I are supposed to live under the power and unction of God so that others might know him and so that you might live life to its full capacity. So it's that simple. If that's you, why don't you come before we sing. You just come up to the front and say, you know what, that's me. I want to be a Deborah in somebody's story. I'm tired of this being about me. I'm tired of it being about my preferences. I want to come so that others may later come. I say this often, and it's so simple, so forgive me for my simplicity. But I believe it's true. If you cannot, for some reason, because of pride or because of discomfort, if you feel a need to respond but you can't because it's awkward to walk up in front of people in this room, I promise you, you're going to struggle with living out your faith out there. Not that coming up here makes it easier, but it is a first step in denying self and taking up our identity as followers of Jesus. Because if we can walk here humbly in front of those around us who may think we have it all together and say, you know what, that's me, then we have a far better shot of trusting God again out there when we're by ourselves. When we're sharing the gospel with a professor or advisor who we feel is aggressive towards our beliefs. When we're sharing with a family member or a parent who's so entrenched in old thinking that they cannot see that reconciliation is the way. So as we sing this song, if you're here, you're a staff member, you're one of our prayer folks, you're a small group leader, you're an alum, I want us to pray for every single person that's at the altar. Just a simple touch on the shoulder saying, I'm praying for you. I believe that God is raising up a generation of Debras who would speak life, who would speak truth, and who would radically alter the eternity of people on this campus because God is worth it and God has given us authority. He's simply waiting for us. Let's pray and sing this song together and seek God.